TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. And now... You're listening to TalkLine with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host... Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. To England, we go to London. Gabriel Cantor Weber is with us. He is a writer. He is a he's a student rabbi. He's in the process of becoming a rabbi at the Leo Beck College in London. He wrote a fascinating article called "The Anti-Semitic Rabbi Who Became a Priest." Actually, he's been studying cases of rabbis who've been defrocked. He only found 17 instances in Jewish history. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I found your article interesting. It was in Tablet Magazine entitled The Anti-Semitic Rabbi Who Became a Priest. Uh, he was in New York City. You start off with the proceedings in New York in the beginning of the 1900s. So before we get to that, how did you get involved in finding, you're based in London, how did you find this rabbi in New York who was colorful and who may have been a priest? The rabbi got himself into hot water. So, as you say, I've been researching um, those rabbis who have gone wrong and who have lost their titles, had their titles taken away. And I've been looking in as many archives of responsa from the Middle Ages right through to modern times that I can. And I came across the case of uh, Judah Elfenbein um, while searching defrocked rabbis or unfrocked rabbis or whatever terms I was looking in the National Library of Israel archives. And the Jewish Telegraphic Agency had a little piece that came up and then I ended up down the rabbit hole or the rabbi hole and was really carefully looking to piece the rest of the story together. So let's go to 1923. Actually, there is a forward story, February 26, 1923, and it talks about the rabbi who puts his head through glass door and disappears. And it goes back in New York City where the Union of Orthodox Rabbis of Canada had a disciplinary hearing held in New York City. Pick up the story from there. So Judah Elfenbein emerged in the United States in 1920. He got off a boat from Europe and worked as a rabbi for a while in Youngstown, Ohio, and then moved to a congregation in Brooklyn, in in, um, Brooklyn and then to the Bronx, finally. And a few people started talking and started recognizing him and started wondering if he was a person that they knew from back home in the old country. And it seems like, indeed, some journalists uh, flew over or boated over a um, number of people from um, the sort of Ukraine, Austro-Hungary area where he'd lived and studied to see if they could recognize him. And the reason that they recognized him was they said that they knew he had been born and brought up Jewish, attended rabbinical seminary, and then gone to the other side and become a priest, either a Catholic priest or a Greek Orthodox priest. The story is very slightly And while a priest, he allegedly wrote a number of blood libel articles, as, you know, the former rabbi tells all um, in various Polish newspapers. And he clearly was alleged to have come to New York to start a new life and put his past behind him and work as a rabbi again. And he got found out and he was summoned to a disciplinary hearing of the um, Agudat Rabbonim. And at that hearing, he broke down and confessed and signed a pledge never to work as a rabbi again. But I wanted to go back to something. You mentioned he wrote articles attacking Jews being blood libel. But uh, didn't you also find that he was called Father Stanilis Tillinger, 
and he testified in an Austrian court that Jews used Christian blood to make matzah and subsequently sent an innocent man to prison. He was called Rav Meshuma, the apostate rabbi, by the Yiddish media. He was. I'm really carefully using the word allegedly because a number of people who have studied closely quite a lot of blood libel trials in um, 20th, 19th and 20th century Europe have said that a lot of the allegations against him actually weren't true. So the most famous of these blood libel trials was the Hilsner Affair, which was in Austro-Hungary in 1898. And it was alleged that um, Judah Elfenbein, under the name of Father Stanislaus Tillinger, had given evidence saying that Jews do indeed kill Christians to use their blood. But actually, there's a prof- you know there's a number of professors of Jewish studies who've got in touch to say he doesn't appear in the transcripts anywhere. And they're wondering, actually, if there was a level of hysteria or moral panic about a rabbi who had once been a Christian and there was a lot of stories circulating around the Yiddish rumor network and um, he maybe wasn't as guilty as charged. So what was he again? Because he did certainly, he appeared at the Agudas Rabbanim, the Union of Orthodox Rabbis. He appeared there, he said he wasn't going to continue to be a rabbi. He was defrocked, but certainly he committed certain sins. The fact that he was a priest and became a rabbi wouldn't disqualify him. I know even in today's day and age, people who were Catholic priests or other priests that became Orthodox rabbis, there's nothing that would prevent it. So obviously there's something more to the story. Yes, and it's really difficult to put together exactly what it was. I wonder actually if a big part of it was simply that it was an incredibly high-pressure hearing. The descriptions of this hearing is like nothing that we can really imagine happening today. There were 10 of the most senior rabbis of 1920s Orthodox America were gathered together. There were apparently about 300 spectators. It was a public hearing that took place. There were journalists, there were flashing lights, there were cameras. And then he turned up and he was this figure of great hatred and there was hissing and pointing throughout the room when he arrived slightly late, apparently. So he was clearly really Jewish at heart if he turned up late. Um, And I wonder actually if he was just completely intimidated by what happened. He certainly was a Christian at some point in his life. There's articles that he's written as a Christian But no one's actually, despite all this research that's been going on in the last few weeks, been able to find anything actually anti-Semitic that he did right. So I wonder if there is actually a big element of moral panic that was happening. Yeah, I wonder how that whole thing came about, because you had a lot of those charges made, including in the room. And the reason why you had so many reporters, you had a frenzy of people that were there because of the interest in such a unique story. Yeah, I mean, the worst The worst thing I found, so to speak, was a Polish article he wrote in 1901, which said that Jews were misguided believers and deliberately tried to dissuade Christians from believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And to be fair, that's true. I mean, that's not that we're misguided, but like we don't we don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But I wonder, actually, if just the fact that a rabbi had written that article, which I'm sure did bring the Jews into disrepute, got somewhat blown out of proportion we have to remember this was a time before internet archives were available and people couldn't simply search and see what he had and hadn't written but rather Shloimi would say it in the coffee shop on second avenue and he'd then tell it to his cousin and he'd then tell it to his cousin and it would turn into what seemed like a um really significant rumor mill and we see a lot of that from after the trial and this is is before twitter and instagram so you can imagine what it created at that point in time but at the trial itself with the Agudas Rabbanim, wasn't there a heavily bearded man who came in and said, that's Tillinger, that's Elfenbein, that identified him as being both? They did identify him as being both, and he didn't really, 
He didn't really deny being both, and we found his birth records, which show that he was born as Judah Tillinger, and he became Judah Elfenbein on arrival in the States. Possibly it was his mother's maiden name, because he wanted to um, have a fresh start, which was not unusual for people coming in through Ellis Island, of course. And there was certainly some element of hounding that was going on. There were occasions when he had to call the police because journalists wouldn't leave his home. And after the trial, he disappeared, but there were then sort of Elvis-like sightings of him around the United States for quite a few years afterwards. There was a dishwasher in California who looked a bit like him. There was I, I love the name, in... Rabbi Rudolph Coffey. Yes, it was an excellent name, Rabbi Rudolph Coffey. I love the name. Said that he spotted him washing dishes in Oakland and said, you know, are you this person? And the dishwasher denied being Rabbi Tillinger, Rabbi Elfenbein, but couldn't stop himself from dropping Talmudic wisdom from his lips. So he sounds like he must have worked in a very interesting cafe. <laughs> And the, and do we know what actually happened to him? Not so much. The end of his life, we know that he died in poverty in a shack outside Rio de Janeiro. He seems to have spent the last couple of years of his life working as the librarian to the Brazilian Senate, of all things. But how and why he ended up there is not entirely clear. What happened to him straight after the trial is not entirely clear. It's a really fascinating life with just these very few fixed points and everything else seems to be a huge amount of rumour, conjecture, and, you know, what the Yiddish media in history was like as well. It was a really exciting time for stories to be shared and told and retold in different ways, and who can say exactly what happened and what didn't. Now, did he say any more at the trial as to why he was born Jewish, became a priest, and then came back to be a rabbi? Did he shed any light as to... It is strange just to go through that whole keep on. He kept kept on changing, kept changing religions like people's change underwear. He kept changing. <laughs> did he, did he give any indication of what was going on? No, basically, or certainly none that I've been able to identify. But some of the other um, stories of his early life can maybe paint a little bit of a picture. So he came from a very small, rural, possibly slightly backward shtetl in um, Bukovina, um, Bukovina rather, which was a region of sort of the Austro-Hungary, Austro Ukraine sort of area. And he went to Vienna to study for the rabbinate. And a lot of his former classmates gave news, news interviews after the trial. And they were all had very unpleasant things to say about him. There seems to be a lot of snobbishness that he had these sort of strange rural ways that he came from a poor background. He wore silly clothes. He was seen as a bit of a comic figure. And we certainly know that he found difficulty obtaining the necessary work permits to work as a rabbi after um, leaving the seminary. And so I wonder, actually, if he just felt completely betrayed and rejected by the Jewish community. And he came to these great centers of secular learning and secular knowledge. And he found himself embraced by a different religious tradition. Which is either was either Greek Orthodox or Catholic. It's The jury is not out on that, correct? The jury is out. Some of the articles suggest that he was Greek Orthodox because he was married at one point and Greek Orthodox priests are allowed to be married. So that would explain that that would help him to explain the fact that he had kids. Um, but it's not clear. And it's also only fair to say that there's a Catholic newspaper from 1923 that looked into it quite carefully. And they said they could find no trace that he'd ever been a priest of any description at all. He was a Christian, but not a priest. Now, were there also claims that at one point he attempted to blackmail a Czech newspaper editor to campaign for him to be admitted to rabbinical college? Yeah, a number of articles suggest that he had a uh, broigus with the editor of a Czech newspaper called 
I'm going to mispronounce it now, CAS, CAS, C-A-S, anyway. Um, and this was a newspaper that had been very active in defending Leopold Hilsner, who was the victim of this blood libel trial. And that's one of the suggestions. And again, that's possibly where some of the stories came from, is that he decided to spite the editor of this newspaper, who didn't take his cause when he was expelled from a rabbinical college, by undermining the newspaper's work in trying to prove Leopold Hilsner innocent. But again, we've only got very different and inconsistent accounts for all of this. There was certainly some sort of brogus, but again, putting together the details might well be a lifetime's work. But I'm just curious because he, I, I know that you did, did he actually get ordained as a rabbi? He was expelled. What was his status? Was he really a rabbi to begin with? Did he have the credentials if he was expelled? It's so hard to tell. So most of the coverage agrees that he was expelled from two different seminaries, from Vienna and from Berlin. But there's also quite a few news articles in German newspapers from the sort of early 1900s that describe him as applying for different rabbinical jobs around the place, which suggests that he was ordained. But rabbinic ordination back then was more complicated. It needn't be that being expelled from a seminary would be the end of it, because you could get privately ordained quite easily if some of his teachers thought that he was a promising student he could still have obtained that ordination. I think the likelihood is that he was a rabbi uh, in one way or another because he certainly seems to have been applying for rabbinic positions with no one questioning his credentials. But as to exactly how he obtained that, I don't know. Now, I want to go back to the proceedings of the ten men, as you write, clad in black, prominent rabbis of the Union of Orthodox Rabbis of the United States and Canada, the Goodest Harabanim, um, and they had a hearing to determine what his fate should be. You write in the middle that they daven mincha, the afternoon prayer services, and which is they broke the proceedings to do that, and that seemed to have had an impact on, on him. Did it, is it not? I'm that certainly I'm seems to be the Rabbi moment Judah that he Elfbein, yeah. Sorry, you I interrupted no, you. I said Rabbi, it had an impact on by Judah Elfbein. Yeah, um, certainly the press coverage suggests that it was after Mincha, when they paused it and there were prayers for forgiveness, that that's when he broke down and confessed. That might just be an exciting, poetic way of telling the story, of their telling the story, or it might be literally what happened. I can well imagine them breaking for Mincha, because it seems to have been a really long proceeding. There was witness after witness from the old country, from Youngstown, from Brooklyn, from the Bronx, from all the different places where he'd been in the United States and from everywhere in his life that these witnesses, witnesses could be dredged up. It's a shame there's no, well, they didn't have video then, any audio recordings of that particular session. That would have been fascinating to hear. It would indeed. I mean, that hearing is probably one of the better um, known and more objectively described bits that happened because the press were actually there and saw it with their own eyes. And actually there are some articles that are kind of verging on transcripts of what happened almost that go into really great detail about who said what. Um, it's everything. It's the before and after that are the mystery. Now you you write in your article and he said, quote, after they daven mincha, the afternoon prayer services, he, with a trembling hand, he picked up his pen and he wrote, quote, I testify and confirm that I am not deserving of being a servant of the sacred profession. I pledge myself never to accept a religious position, either as rabbi or teacher in a religious school, on account of being unfitted by the deeds of my youth, which are widely and generally known. Signed, Judah Elfenbein, formerly Tillinger. Yeah. And that is the confession that he signed. But again, I think if we're, if we're comparing this to a, court, a courtroom procedure, which I think we can do, 
it would have been an incredibly oppressive environment. If these days we had a defendant who was on their own in the courtroom with no one to represent them, 300 very hostile spectators in the gallery, no opportunity to really meet the charges, I can well imagine that he might have signed anything that they were giving him just to get out of that space almost. And he certainly does not seem to have taken it that seriously. He was um, found seeking rabbinic positions a couple of times later in his life. despite. Oh, oh he did. Was, uh, did he get any other rabbinical positions as far as we know? He didn't get any other rabbinical positions. There's a couple of records that suggest that he um, went to some synagogues back in Czechoslovakia and in Eastern Europe um, in the late 1920s and maybe was with them for a few service or gave a few drushes before he was um, spotted and thrown out and on one occasion nearly lynched, it sounds like. Um, but no, there was no there was no full-time rabbinical work for him after that, which is no doubt how he ended up being a librarian in Brazil. That's that's where washed-up rabbis go to. We got a lot from Austria to New York, to he's with us all over the place uh, where he was through his uh, career. Gabriel Cantor Weber is our guest. He's a student rabbi who wrote a fascinating article, The Antisemitic Rabbi Became a Priest. He's doing research on rabbis who've been defrocked over the course of history. You only found 17. Were you surprised at such a low number? I wasn't, I wasn't. Actually, most of my teachers that I've been discussing this dissertation with have said, you can't defrock a rabbi. Once a rabbi, always a rabbi. And they've been kind of surprised to be confronted with 17 cases where it's happened. But they've been very varied cases. This has been the most interesting there's one rabbi who was defrocked for waxing his hair on Chol HaMoed Sukkot. So um, there's a big range. Where, where was that? That was in Hungary in the 19th century. And what are some of the other cases that you found of rabbis who got defrocked? Quite a lot of them seem to have been personal squabbles that so-and-so disrespected so-and-so and so so-and-so defrocked them of the sort that we maybe shouldn't be surprised to see. Um, only about five years ago, uh, the Rabbanut in Israel defrocked a rabbi for stealing Sifrei Torah from his own synagogue and selling them, uh, which seems not unreasonable as a punishment. And then there's also cases of rabbis who haven't been defrocked, but maybe should have been. There's a reform rabbi serving a life sentence in New Jersey for murdering his wife. Oh, I did a story there about is... that with a book that came out, The Rabbi and the Hitman, yes. Uh -huh. The Rabbi and the Hitman, that's him. There was a uh, progressive rabbi in Australia who became a Jew for Jesus. Um, there was the chief rabbi of Rome in the 1940s. Orthodox chief rabbi of Rome became a Catholic and started lecturing at Catholic University. Um, and so there are these interesting cases of the ones that should have been, the ones that shouldn't have been. It's been a really fascinating topic that I'm only really beginning to get to grips with. Fascinating, sir. We appreciate your sharing because it's something which is not much known and uh, certainly it, it's created a stir in the press in 1923 when the hearing took place. And as you said, there was a mob of reporters and spectators, yet about 300 people. And uh, you had, you know, the 10 rabbis that had a bet in proceeding uh, you know, to, to see should it be defrocked. And so it sounds like it got a lot of attention at the time, then just fell into the dustbin of history. So thank you for bringing it back to life again. It's been really exciting to feel like I'm delving into another world. It's been great. <laughs> Gabriel Cantor Weber, who is a student rabbi who wrote the article, The Anti-Semitic Rabbi Who Became a Priest. It's in Tablet Magazine. Thank you for sharing the story with us. What's your next dissertation or article going to be about? I think I've got to get through the remaining 10,000 words of this <laughs> one first. Okay. But you, you think you're going to find anything more about Rabbi Judah Elfenbein? I'm sure I will. My current one is that I've sent off to the Brazilian probate office for a copy of his will, which is apparently 57 pages. And since he died penniless, I'm wondering what he filled 57 pages with. And I assume, was was he married? 
He was married in the very, very early days and divorced his wife, and his Brazilian immigration card lists him as single. So um, I think he lived a life very much alone, really. But you, do we know if he had any children? He certainly had at least some children, and one of them seems like it was one of them paid his passage to America to get to get him away, essentially. I think they found him a bit of an embarrassment by that oh, wow. point. Have you been able to track down any family members and get to them in your research? I've not. I found, I found a very distant cousin who himself is a genealogist and has been trying to find direct descendants. But the paths are very much dried up. My, my suspicion is that his children changed his children and wife changed their surname or went back to her maiden surname because of the notoriety. It would have been awful for them. Wow, fascinating. So, Gabriel, thank you for sharing that with us. I look forward to having you back. Good luck on your studies. Thank you. And we're going to be right back. Don't go away. Stay tuned. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk Line Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the Talkline network and Talkline's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. Thanks for listening. For continuous Jewish programs, talklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the talklinenetwork.com. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.